In this series of The Chiefs, we're casting a watchful eye on the year ahead. And in today's episode, we sit down with a man who has a keener eye than most. Former head of the Danish Intelligence Service and head of Europe at London-based Macro Advisory Partners, Thomas Ehrenkiel joins me today from Copenhagen. He offers a report card on Europe's approach to the current threat landscape as we ask whether we're truly prepared for what lies ahead. From cybersecurity to Russia, terrorism to the oversight of threats from Africa and the Middle East, we undertake a thoughtful probe of the risks that face the European continent as we head into 2022. From Zurich, I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Thomas, why don't we start uh, just very briefly, or it can take as long as you want as well, but maybe if we survey the landscape across Europe, and that, is, of course, is from an EU and NATO context, of course, we can look a little bit further uh, beyond as well. But if you had to deliver a end of 2021 going into 2022 report card, an assessment of, of how you see things from a security point of view, also I guess with this underlay of, of 21 months of, of COVID as well, from an intelligence perspective, knowing your background, how do you see things? Well, I think uh, 2021, 2020 actually, and moving into 22, they have all been challenging years. Of course, the pandemic has been defining a lot of what has been going on. And Dealing with the pandemic has been, I would say, the biggest challenge for governments across the world, and of course, also governments in Europe. I would say the scorecard is, is actually, uh, it's mixed, but it's overall, I think we have done quite a good job, even though we now see an increase in, in cases and we have uh, seen risks of, of new lockdowns. I would say dealing with the pandemic has really been key to cooperation in Europe over the last one and a half years. And that has actually gone better than we could have feared. Of course, we have seen nations also going for themselves in terms of distributing vaccines, in terms of producing vaccines, that's increased focus on supply chain uh, and the robustness of those supply chains in the health sector, but also in other sectors. And that continues to be a challenge, but from a European perspective, the cooperation has worked quite well. On top of that, we have seen the development of other threats to European security, to European defense. I would point to the cyber threat, to Russia and to terrorism as the key threats that um, governments and intelligence agencies have to face these years. And, and Thomas, if we look at what happened or what has happened in the background with the pandemic itself, whether we look at, of course, the public sector or the private sector, in some corners, it has allowed businesses and governments to, to move ahead because just the lack of mobilization has allowed big infrastructure projects to, to move forward. If we think about, let's say, many, many aviation projects, uh, big, big airports have actually, they've accelerated uh, their expansion, the renovations, because, of course, they haven't had uh, traffic. If we look at the, the security, uh, the security systems, the security you know, apparatus that we have uh, across Europe, across the world. Has it been a similar situation as well, because maybe a lack of people on the street has allowed for system improvements, uh, has allowed for better deployment of, of intelligence resources? Uh, what has this actually meant from really from an intelligence gathering point of view uh, over the last 21 months? Well, I, I would I would say the following. 
we are all facing an increasingly complex set of challenges in the field of security. And this also pertains, of course, to the security, to the intelligence services of Europe. The pandemic has been, as you say, in some ways, a relief because of, of lack of traveling, more control of borders, etc. So there has been, in some ways, a small relief and uh, a time to reflect. On, on the other hand, I would say, if you look at the threat picture surrounding Europe, there are so many that you can start dealing with. And so many that actually we have to deal with on a daily basis, from the east to the south of Europe, the ever increasing cyber threat. And this comes at a time when technology, also because of the pandemic, plays an ever increasing role in our daily lives. So these threats are actually increasing uh, as we speak. And these are indeed daunting challenges for, for European security and intelligence services. Over the past months, we've seen, let's call them some blips. We've seen two terrorist incidents or, or declared incidents in, in the UK, for example. If you look across the, the European landscape right now, Thomas, how do you see things? What, what are the key threats right now, whether we think about maybe the context of, of daily life going about your business as much as uh, maybe more significant threats that are over the horizon. And I guess, I mean, it's, it's of course, it's a big landscape to scan. But again, the, the lay listener probably very much thinks about, you know, what, what does this mean, you know, in terms of daily life as people get back to commuting, as people move back out in the world, as much as we look towards the, the frontiers of Europe as well? Yes, I, I think I, I would have two answers to, to that question. I think in the long term, the increasing fragmentation of the global economic and political landscape is actually the most important threat to Europe and to the European Union, to our prosperity, to our way of life and to our security. And I think the geopolitical struggle between the US and China is in many ways defining the global landscape and other players like the European Union are trying to navigate within that space. And this is actually at a time when we need international cooperation more than ever in combating things like climate change. So that's one answer. In, in the short term, and this may be more pertinent to everyday life, my top three list of the, the, the security threats that we face is the cyber threat, is Russia and terrorism. And we can perhaps dive into those. Well, let, let's do that then. And maybe let's start with the cyber component as well. And again, if we look back across uh, the last year, year and a half, we have seen you know, a significant uh, series of attacks um, against, of course, private sector actors, state actors at the same time. I could even speak as a media organization uh, where we've seen uh, significant attacks, which have you know, largely been driven by China, it would seem, partly because we might say nice things about Taiwan. Uh, so this, you know, this is something that, of course, businesses and, of course, the state is dealing with every day. So let's start with that, Thomas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a big concept when we think about cybersecurity. If I am a government uh, or if I'm a, if I'm a business of, of, of larger or small scale, what are the, I guess, the defensive measures right now that we're seeing that we're being put into place? And I guess, are we, are we being front-footed enough, again, whether we're private or public sector? The short answer is, is no. I, I think if we look at it sort of from the, the threat side, this is a very serious threat. It continues to increase day by day. It's about ransomware. You mentioned it's about espionage but it's also an increasing threat to critical infrastructure, so i.e. the, the so-called destructive cyber attacks. And I think both private sector and public authorities, they struggle to keep up with this threat. So we are seeing increasing resources 
being deployed to this area, both in the private sector and in the public sector. But it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a new balance that we have to find uh, between all the time looking for the new threats, all the time increasing our defenses, but also looking at what are the actors or who are the actors and how can we get at them, so to speak. I must say this is something that will not go away. Uh, this is a threat that will only increase in the future. And actually the private businesses, the governments that are ahead of the game, they have a very important competitive advantage in this environment. Let's continue on your top three, Thomas. Uh, let's let's move uh, and, and focus our gaze uh, eastward to, to Russia. Yes. I think if we look at the latest developments along the borders of Ukraine, if we look at what's going on in, in Belarus at the moment, I think it's, it's fair to say that we also see the hand of Russia behind these developments. What I see is a Russia that has an aim to create or recreate a zone of influence along the Western border to Europe. Uh, and Russia has concluded that time is not on their side. And therefore, they are trying to move forward and create a situation in which they can make use of force. And this is a serious uh, threat that is currently developing and that we have to deal with, not only as Europeans, but of course, uh, the US is also very much involved. I think what we need to understand is that Russia sees security as a zero-sum game. So they win, we lose, and the other way around. So the more they can weaken the West, the more they can weaken Europe and the European Union, the better it is for them. It increases their security. So we have to face this challenge. We have to be fully aware that it's there and uh, what is behind it. And we have to be very clear in responding to it. Thomas, from, from your perspective, how much of this is about playing to a domestic audience, of course, Moscow uh, flexes its muscles, it, it goes about its various posturing, whether that is within or outside of Belarus, certainly along the borders of, of the Ukraine. How much do you see that as, as really, in a way, a bit of a domestic diversion from one side, of course, to, to draw attention of the Russian population away from some glaring problems that, of course, exist within the Russian economy and Russian society, as much as, I guess, on the, on the flip side, for those on the other side of the border, is this... Is, is this looking for leverage and certainly the behavior around the Ukraine and Belarus in particular? What, what, what is the game there? Of course, there's always a domestic angle to the actions of any government. This also includes, of course, Russia. But I would say this is not the primary target for what we see now along the border of Ukraine. This is a longer game. This is a game that Russia has been playing for years, but now they have again decided to, to act. I'm not saying that they are going to invade uh, Ukraine, but they are certainly creating a situation in which they can act at their discretion. I think the overall aim of this is to ensure that Ukraine does not come closer to NATO and the European Union for that matter, or the opposite, that NATO does not come closer to, to Ukraine, i.e. deployment of, of forces, uh, support, trainers, etc. So they are sending a very strong signal that they're not, not going to accept such a situation. And this is why I say that they are adamant to create this zone of influence where they can actually dominate uh, the countries along the eastern border uh, of the European Union. Let's focus on 
terrorism right now. Over the past weeks, we, we saw an incident uh, in Liverpool, which was quite quickly flagged as, as a terrorist incident. We saw, of course, counterterrorism authorities take over this investigation very quickly in the UK. And I guess if you step back from it, we saw a situation where we're, it seemed very quickly as well that the counterterrorism forces seemed to know who they had to to round up in this case. And, and that's not isolated. You know, quite quite frequently, we either see something is is thwarted, it's averted, or, you know, sadly, an event happens. And security services seem to know who these, these individuals are. What I'm interested in, are we moving to a place... And, and maybe this this comes from a position of, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in Zurich interviewing you, where, of course, we've had a, a piece of legislation passed uh, quite recently in this country, and it was, you know, done uh, in the form of a referendum. People stood behind this, which is a preemptive measure where without maybe the normal checks and balances uh, that the security services in this country will be able to to act. Do we see... I guess, more front-footed legislation? Do we see a society, Thomas, where people are going to be in a position where they're, you know, where they're happy to not give up freedoms necessarily, uh, but they are certainly going to be much more willing uh, to, to have a government which can, which can act and has the powers to, to act without uh, maybe all of the, the cumbersome checks and balances that one might have needed as recently as six months ago or a year ago? Yes, I think you're right. We have seen so many terrorist attacks uh, across the world, uh, but also in Europe uh, over the, 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 the last years, that there have been taken increasing steps in order to strengthen the hand of uh, police, um, but also security and intelligence. And I think this has been broadly accepted in the public opinion as being necessary in order to counter the terrorist threat. However, of course, this, this, this tends to come in waves. So you might also see a counterwave developing at some point where people uh, are questioning the need for security and intelligence uh, agencies to have access to data, uh, to have all the instruments that you also point to that are necessary in order to, to, to combat the terrorist threat. So I, I'm not saying that we are not going to see again a period where the instruments uh, are being questioned. But I would say that over the last, I would say, 15 years, we have witnessed more forward-leaning legislation, as well as resources being deployed to security, intelligence, police authorities in order to combat this threat. And I believe this has been necessary. Of course, it has to happen with the necessary guarantees that this does not mean that security intelligence authorities, they snoop into ordinary people's mails or SMSs or telephone conversations. So I think the guarantees for legality are very much necessary in order to ensure that we continue to have the necessary confidence in the authorities that are combating this threat. And I believe that the balance has been struck in a reasonable way in many European uh, countries. Let's change tack for a moment. I'm thinking about the period that we're in right now where we've, we see you know, extraordinary uh, deficits uh, when it comes to, to talent in, in all kinds of sectors of society. I would say probably the last few years doing, doing this program, having conversations 
with people in the world of intelligence and and diplomacy, there there's almost this balance that also needs to be squared as well about are are we paying these people the appropriate salaries? Uh, people who are putting themselves uh, in in danger. A lot of questions, of course, around just the world of being a serving diplomat. You know, where many people think, well. I can go and have a very nice life. Also, you're living in an exotic location, uh, maybe without all of the trappings I would get uh, being an ambassador, uh, but I'll certainly get a, a bigger a bigger salary. So if we actually look at the, at the entire picture, even maybe almost because, of course, you've come from a world of diplomacy as well, is is it still is it still a sexy sexy job? And and are foreign ministries, and of course, security services are are they selling it? properly still um and yeah and 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 if it's not being done well uh what what needs to happen because of course we do see some countries singapore is you know would be would be a good example um standing in switzerland uh as well another another nation where public servants are are paid private sector salaries and i'm wondering if we need if we see a move in this direction especially when we're talking about the threats and also the type of diplomacy that needs to be done in a contemporary context well, I think this is a really good question. And I would say from the people that I know from almost 30 years of, of public service, people are not in it for, for the money. People are in it because of the fact that it makes sense to them, uh, that there's a higher purpose uh, or at least a sense of higher purpose in what they're doing. They, they are serving a nation. They are serving uh, a cause. So that's, that's, I think, the first thing that I would say. Of course, having made the transition to the private sector, there are, at least in some countries, uh, not the ones that you mentioned, but in some countries, an increasing divergence between the conditions in the private sector and the conditions in the public sector. And that can, of course, be, be a challenge in the long run. So there's definitely something to, to look into here. But I would say, coming back to my, my starting point, that actually this is, this is not the most important. The job description, the sense of purpose, I think is what drives people to do the work in diplomacy or in uh, security and intelligence services. If we look across the globe, and maybe if we think about the globalization of information, do you have a worry or concern that maybe in the West, uh, we're almost becoming a little bit too decadent? There's a lot of focus on problems which they erupt or they, they bubble up to the surface, and suddenly these become sort of the driving topics of the day. And yet, if we look to Moscow or Beijing or, or certainly to other capitals, these are, these are not seen as concerns. And, and often, I think you, know, you speak to many people and, and there's that sense that, are they just laughing at us in Beijing? Are they laughing at, at us in Moscow? Well, we seem to devour ourselves in, I would say, some very luxurious topics, which can really dominate the news agenda. But when you really get to, I guess, bubble up to the top of what are, what are really important geopolitical issues, I guess what I'm getting at, are our priorities in the right place or do we need to get back and actually focus a little bit and understand that what's happening in Beijing or what is happening in Moscow, these aren't just passing issues um, and, and maybe we need to be putting a little bit more focus um, and being a little bit more diligent uh, in, in certainly our dealing, uh, of course, with these, with these states and whether that is dialogue or whether it's being more on a defensive or offensive measure. Yeah, I guess I would love your assessment uh, about that uh, because it does seem in this period that uh, maybe the focus of the West is, uh, is, is not as keen as it should be. 
Yeah, well, it, it's a good point. And I, I think your, your description of how they look at us from Beijing or from Moscow is not entirely incorrect, uh, maybe if I can use an understatement. I definitely think that there is something to be said for redefining or rediscovering sort of the more strategic culture, a strategic debate uh, in the West, speaking broadly. I think if you look at what the Biden administration is doing, this actually was also the case under the Trump administration. Uh, they have set and taking important steps in order to counter what they perceive as the biggest uh, long-term threat to the US, and that is the rise of China and the asymmetric competition out of China uh, for economic, political, and in the end, military dominance in the 21st century. So the US basically has decided to try and outcompete China, deploying all the resources that the US can muster uh, on this. In Europe, I would say it's a mixed picture. I think things are moving in the right direction. There is a more of a nascent strategic culture being developed in Europe. And we see steps being taken in that direction, both when it comes to trade, when it comes to industrial policy, when it comes to technology development, and when it comes to military capabilities. The question is, though, uh, whether we are keeping up with the pace of the developments uh, in the threat environment. And you point to, to Russia, uh, seen from a European perspective, as one of the important threats. And here we have seen Russia modernizing its military for many, many years. And they are very capable, and they are a very capable adversary. So keeping up with that is a crucial challenge. But if we, if we also look at the instability in the, the close vicinity of Europe, in the Middle East, in North Africa, uh, there are so many threats that we need to counter. Uh, and the question is, are we responding quickly enough to that? And I would say that is a serious challenge, and the jury is still out, but we need to up our game. You jumped to North Africa, which is where I wanted to, to go next, and because we've been focusing a lot on the, let's say, the, the eastern flank. But if we look uh, south to Europe, if we look across the Med, if we look to Sahel, and of course, you know, there it is. it has really been, of course, partly for historical reasons that this has been... Yeah, a a charge which has been led by by France, of course, you know, supported by by other other NATO allies um, as well. This is obviously uh, an area that you're pointing to. Now we see, of course, daily, just that level of instability from from your point of view. Uh, and, and now speaking, of course, from from the private sector, and looking towards uh, various ministries and various capitals. What needs to to be done? Uh, does this mean it's about more? active forward deployment of forces, it, is it, clearly it's obviously more spending on intelligence. And if we're not there, and, and of course we know the threat is there, Thomas, uh, where is that reluctance? Uh, why are we a little bit on the back foot when it still comes to North Africa and of course everything happening, certainly you know, bubbling up also from Sub-Saharan Africa as well? It's a good question, uh, and I'm not sure that I, I, I have the full answer. But I think one of, one of the key challenges is, of course, that this is such a complex threat or challenge that we see coming out of the Middle East and North Africa. If you look at the root causes, it's about development, it's about economic prosperity, but it's also about climate change and the, the, the rapid increase in population sizes. So, so it's a very 
complex situation that we face. And, and the question is, of course, how do we respond to such a complex uh, threat? It's not only about deploying military means. And I think we have seen over the years that deploying military means it does not in itself produce the results necessary. You have to have a long-term strategy for how to support the development uh, in these countries and the, these regions. So, of course, we need to have the military capabilities. We need to have security and intelligence capabilities to understand what's going on and to counter the threats. I think if you look at sort of the, 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 the migration piece of this, you have seen Europe uh, being much more robust uh, since 2015. Um, on trying to counter migration into Europe and deploying means that we would not have foreseen six or seven years ago. So a lot has happened on that. But countering or fighting the root causes is very, very complex. And it's about development aid. It's about cooperation, about trade agreements. The challenge is daunting. There are no easy answers. Thomas, just uh, before we go, because we're now we're almost out of time, I wanted to just end on the point of you, of course, jumping um, out of the world, or at least let's call it maybe transitioning out of the world of, of course, being in, in the public sector, and now, uh, of course, joining Macro Advisory Partners and now being in private sector. What do you think that you can offer or what, what are the advantages uh, suddenly being on the other side, uh, of course, you know, still in partnership, of course, um, with with uh, with clients, I'm sure both on on the the government um, and the private sector side. But but being in that position now in the private sector, what does a firm like yours and a person in a position at a firm like yours have to offer that maybe uh, would not have been possible, of course, when uh, you're at the end of the public purse? It's a really good question and one that I continue to ask myself. But I think the the answer is that politics and policy matters more and more to the way we do business in this world. So we have moved uh, away from the era of globalization and more integration to an era of more competition and fragmentation. And what we deliver at MAP is the ability of businesses to navigate uh, in this geopolitical landscape. If you are able to get ahead of the competition in understanding the need to solidify supply chains to manage the clean energy transition or how to make cybersecurity a business advantage, then you are much better situated as a private company in this new world landscape. And here I think that with my experience and with the experiences of my colleagues at MAP, we are able to provide both tactical and strategic advice to businesses on how to navigate, as I said, in this new geopolitical landscape. And this is crucial to still more companies around the world. So I think there's a really good business proposition. And I would also say from a personal perspective, this makes a lot of sense. There's actually a great sense of purpose for me, uh, helping businesses understand the new global landscape and how to navigate it. It makes sense. My thanks to Thomas Arenkiel for this week's episode of The Chiefs. Join us next time as we look at the world of media with Ringier CEO Mark Valder. This episode of The Chiefs was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu with the recording assistance of Desiree Bendley. I'm Tyler Brule. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.